There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in 10 and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, I got my phone on, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi, retired NYPD detective. Phil, this case has been, uh, I'm not going to say baffling, I'm going to say more like challenging. Uh, You know, I think that the public and the press and everyone gets spoiled in regards to they want immediate uh they want an immediate uh, arrest in this and and it's it's not going to happen we would all love that we would all love an immediate arrest because this is a heinous case college campus four young kids just out- outrageous but it's more of a difficult case than of course first thought of and the super sleuths uh, on television and the broadcast media, they demand certain things. They, uh, when you watch some of these press conferences, I'm baffled by how they sneak little innuendos in there and almost try to force the narrative. And that's, folks, why the police are up against these challenges is because certain things they cannot release. They got to keep it on the straight up and up and they can just release certain things. The press wants to create a narrative that will, you know, of course, get them ratings, get them numbers, sell newspapers. And that's not what the police are looking at. The police are looking at doing a concise investigation, find out who the person or persons are that committed this horrendous crime, and then put together a good case so that they can have a good prosecution. Bill, I just want to go over a couple of quick things of facts that we know. Here's what we know. We know that uh, residents of the home, the four victims that were killed, they were out till about one o'clock and one forty-five in the morning. They returned home to the ho- to the house to the location around that time. Then we believe the murders took place between three and four a.m. We don't know exactly how investigators came to that timeline, but that's what they've been reporting that they believe it happened between three and four a.m. At approximately eleven fifty-four or fifty-seven a.m. the next day, nine one one is called for an unconscious victim. Uh, again, we believe the phone call came from one of the uh, surviving victims in the home. I'm sorry, not victims, surviving people in the home, uh, their cell phone. There were other people present. Police have cleared all of those people that were present at that time. So we don't think anybody who lived in that home was involved in the homicide, the horrible, horrible situation. Now, we also know that from the crime scene that was very bloody. Uh, it looks like all the victims were stabbed numerous times. Um, there was a lot of blood and we believe that it's the same murder weapon. Those are the things that have been reported so far. Um, when you look at the layout of the house, um, it looks like the victims were found on the second and third floors of the location. If you look at the geographical, uh, view of the house, 
the front of the house where the first floor is, that seems to be on one side. And then the terrain goes up and the second and third floors, it almost looks like these were two houses that were put together, connected. Maybe one part of the house was built after the other part. So again, uh, the front of the house, uh, first floor, we believe that the surviving people that lived in that home were there. And we believe the victims were on the second and third floor of this location. That is key to this whole investigation because a lot of uh, conjecture, conspiracy theories, how did the other people in the house not understand or know what was going on or hear what was going on? How are they not alerted? Bill and I are going to go through that tonight. We think we have an idea of how that all took place. And we're going to go through that tonight. Uh, just trying to stay on top of some of the facts. And listen, there's so many conspiracy theories out there. Um, we try to stay fact-based in, in this show, uh, in this podcast. And again, we say it all the time. We don't have the inside knowledge. We don't have the case folder in front of us. We don't know what the police are not revealing to the public. So again, uh, we have a pretty good idea of what we think might be going on or think that might be happening. We don't have all the answers, but we do our best to try and give uh, a good opinion based on professionalism and many, many years of experience. Uh, more than a week after four University of Idaho students were stabbed to death in a house near campus, the police chief leading the investigation, that's Chief Fry said on Sunday that the police had not been able to answer many of the crime's most pressing questions, such as how the victim's roommates were not awakened during the overnight killings or where the killer might be now. This is according to the New York Times. The few details that have been uncovered have only deepened the mystery of a crime that has unnerved students and residents in the college town of Moscow, Idaho, and left victims' families trying to help piece together what happened. The coroner who conducted autopsies on the four friends said that they were most likely asleep at the time they were attacked in their beds. I'd just like to say something uh, in regards to that. Coroners are elected officials. They don't conduct the autopsies. Pathologists conduct the autopsies who are medical doctors. So right there, you know, the coroner reports what the pathologist tells her, or in this case, her, but she's not physically conducting the autopsies. Now, does the coroner, in fact, respond to the crime scene? Yes. she. In this case, she did respond to the crime scene. However, I just make it clear that pathologists conduct, conduct the autopsies. And they're going to be the ones who report back to the coroner, yes, this is a big knife. That's been a bone of contention also. We hear that it's a K-bar knife. They refer to it as a Rambo knife. And that will be determined by the huge wounds left by this knife. And apparently in this, with the pathologist reporting this also, the, the, the main wounds were to the chest. So Phil, we've discussed this before. And when they talk about why was there no screaming? Why was there no this? Why was there no that? Potentially a, a thrust with a knife that's eight to 12 inches long. That could just be a kill shot first stab. If it goes Absolutely. to the heart and there's not going to be any screaming, you know, I hate to be so graphic, but the pathologist can probably report that to the coroner and multiple wounds. And there's signs of on one or two of them, defensive wounds, which usually would be on the hands blocking the blows, the stab wounds and that, or, or an arm, putting an arm up in front of you, that would be defensive wounds. So again, the pathologist would be reporting that back to the coroner. 
These are all types of questions we have. And of course, with all of that and stabs to the chest and multiple stab wounds would create a large amount of blood. And right away, we'll, we as homicide investigators are going to say, well, if there's a large amount of blood, there should be blood, A, on the perpetrator's clothing, and B, on the floor. Thus, the perpetrator would step in that and leave footprints leading out, hopefully out of the house, on his shoes. However, one of the things that we brought up multiple times, and I spoke about it last night on Duty Ron's show, when you look at a homicide or any crime for that matter, uh, in, involving a house or a building, we are looking for areas of entrance and exit. How did the perpetrator get into the house and how did he leave the house? And specifically, we care a lot about both of those things because A, how he got in was a forced entry. That would also be indicative, indicative of who he may have killed first. The other thing well, is- Could I make a point about the, the, the wounds and the knife real quick before we go, go ahead, into sir. the exit and entry? Now, uh, Bill, you made the point about that it's a large knife. It's also very wide. So like you said, Billy, you get a stab wound to the chest area, multiple stab wounds to the chest area. Number one, it's going to cause immediate- Massive blood loss, number one. Number two, there's a thing called a sunken chest wound where if you puncture a lung, the oxygen is, is uh, the air goes into the lung and it's very, very hard to speak, breathe. Uh, a person would be left, left gasping for air. Now, I don't want to be so uh, descriptive and so, uh, you know, uh, shocking about it, but this might account for why other people in, in the home didn't hear uh, what was going on as far as the attacks going. And again, Bill, you brought up about defensive wounds. Defensive wounds, persons being stabbed, they're woken up out of their sleep. They possibly could have been drinking or intoxicated. Again, in the panic, you might try and grab the knife. Very, very likely that the, the, the victims will have stab wounds on their hands from defensive uh, marks. Uh, you know, uh, and if if a person is sleeping, and like Billy said, you get that, we're going to call it a kill shot. You get a kill shot with that first stab, they may not have even had a chance to react or to grab the knife or to fight back. It could have been very swift if the attacker knew what he was doing, which I'm kind of leaning in that direction. This this attack seems very, very uh, immediate, very personal. Obviously, a, a knife wound of nature, uh, the nature of that is, is something that's very personal. And uh, we think it might be some type of a, a, a K-bar knife or a hunting knife. Again, a person who's hunting, who does hunting, will know uh, where to stab to get the maximum uh, damage, you know, from, from hunting and, and from doing taxidermy and, you know, working with animals when, when you hunt. So, again, all of those factors have to be taken into consideration. And uh, I think that a lot of uh, the, the uh, content creators or the conspiracy theories that are on uh, on YouTube and uh, throughout the media. I uh, just had a conversation with my own children about this earlier today. They're saying this on TikTok. They're saying that on social media. Again, we have to, uh, a lot of people don't believe that other people could have been in that location and not knew or heard what was going on. I'm pointing out about the, the possibility of a sunken chest wound, very hard to talk or scream. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, when we look at the layout of the house, we'll go through that a little bit later. You'll understand what I was talking about when it looks like there's two different sections of the house. The coroner who conducted the autopsies on the four friends, again, I said she didn't conduct them, the pathologist did, said they were most likely asleep at the time they were attacked, possibly in their beds, and that some of the victims probably tried to fight back. That's based on defensive wounds. 
Two surviving roommates appear to have slept through the killings, something that Chief James Fry of the Moscow Police Department said investigators still do not understand. I don't even know that information at this point in time. He said at a news conference, that's why we're continuing to investigate. So that this whole thing of, of the roommates sleeping through this, and one of the things that now is bothering me a little bit is the next morning, their phones were used to call 911 or their phone. However, they were not the one, the persons that made this call. So who came into that house and reported to them that someone's unconscious and to report someone's unconscious when they were stabbed to death? So there's a lot of questions I have with that. And that's some of the things I believe that the police are, are withholding. They're withholding who called, and they were withholding what was said. Very important who called, very important what was said. The other thing is that one of the girls made up to six or seven phone calls to her apparently sleeping boyfriend. Um, that's important too, because one of the things you would naturally say, okay, she made six or seven calls. Did she leave a voicemail? Usually if you call someone and they don't pick up, at the very least you're saying, pick up, pick up, where are you? you know, you're going to say all of those things. One of the reasons that is important also is it's indicative that they were alive at, at that time. When was the last phone call? Did they say anything? Did they say, oh, someone's in the house? Did they say anything like that? All of that is extremely important in this investigation. And those are some of the things that I believe the police are going to withhold. Billy, I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit. Again, uh, you're making several phone calls. I know when I make a call and person doesn't pick up, I, I'll shoot a text message behind it. So perhaps there was a text message that went behind those calls uh, indicating, uh, where are you? Uh, why don't you meet me? Come to the house, whatever. We don't know what the uh, answer to those questions are. What I believe, and I'm surmising on this, I don't notice for a fact, it sounds like some other friends came to the house, maybe alerted the other two individuals who were in the home that were sleeping, that something was wrong, somebody was unconscious. That's what I heard in a news report today. I don't know if that's not coming directly from the police that's coming from uh, cable news that they said that other people came there and alerted the people who were in the home that did survive the other uh, two residents of the home. And maybe the cell phone was left in the bedroom, go get my phone. And the person just called 911. I'm not sure about that. I can't report that 100%, but that sounds like a likely possibility of what, what transpired. I did hear though. And if you listen to the press conference, they don't think that anybody that called 911 or anybody that was a resident at home is involved in this uh, murder investigation uh, directly involved. So I, I guess that's a, a good point that was brought, brought out in the, uh, in the press conference last night. And Bill, I said it to you before we went on the air. One of the things that I would have asked at that press conference is, and you and I've gone through this and you just brought it up. Do the police know how the perpetrator entered and exit from that home? That's going to be very, very important because if they do know that based on bloody footprints or blood droppings or whatever it is, it gives a better idea of what the perpetrator's movements were before and after entering that location. And now we can start canvassing in that direction. So I think that's very, very important. That's one of the things I would have asked if I was present during that uh, press conference. The other question that I had, and it was asked, it really wasn't answered, was, do you believe there's more than one perpetrator? They really didn't give an answer on that. They, they deferred to answer. I want to play this. This is out of the horse's mouth, Captain Roger Lanier. 
and he is running the investigation for the Moscow police. Detectives have also canvassed several other neighborhoods looking for evidence, looking for additional surveillance video, and contacting residents and speaking to them to see if they may have heard or seen something. I want to address several areas of speculation, conjecture, and uh, misinformation that has circulated on Folks, I apologize. I'm, I'm going to remove this one. It uh, it advanced inadvertently. It wasn't. Uh, let me put let me put it back on the screen. I had an advance of this uh, technical difficulties. You get people ask. Someone asked me the other day, "Why aren't you paying attention?" A lot of times when Phil's talking, and this is one of the exact reasons because I have to pay attention to this. The media platforms and otherwise, we do not believe. The following individuals are involved in this crime. The two surviving roommates, a male seen at the grub truck food vendor downtown, specifically wearing a white hoodie, a private party who provided uh, rides home to Kaylee and Madison in the early morning hour of November 13th. Additionally, the identity of the 911 caller and the 911 call have not been released. So any information out there is speculation about that. Investigators are aware that multiple phone calls from Madison and Kaylee's phone were made to a male subject. Any online reports stating that the victims had been tied and gagged are not accurate. Detectives seized the contents of three dumpsters on King Road and searched those dumpsters in an effort to find additional evidence, but nothing of note was discovered. Early in the investigation, local businesses were canvassed in an effort to see if any fixed blade type knives may have recently been purchased. And currently, there are no suspects in custody and we have not located a weapon. I want to assure you that every investigator involved will continue to put all of their resources and all of our partner agencies resources into continuing this investigation. We do appreciate the community support. We understand how stressful it is and we will continue to work through this situation. At this time, I would like to turn the mic over to Colonel Wills from the Idaho State Police. So folks, a lot of, uh, a lot of answers to things there and things that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation gets out there, uh, especially when, I mean, this is a not just a national case. I guess you would call this an international case. There's so much media um, interested in this case. However, that also allows people, you know, these talking heads, 
I've seen all different types of talking heads on all the media uh, that may or may not have the credentials to speak on this. There's that. Um, there's one FBI agent uh, that that's a profiler that's been on a bunch of the stations, and um, I have I have a little some concerns about profiling. Period. <laughs> you know, and. Um, when they start making it's certainly not an exact science that's for sure no no and, and when they start making these predictions oh this happened and that happened and you know there was someone on cbs i think i have it i may have it somewhere uh i saved yeah actually i'll play a little bit of this but she's already jumping to um serial killer and there is absolutely no evidence that this is even remotely a serial killer, but that's dangerous, you know, and, and the police have said that, like, please let us do this investigation. Let us collect the evidence and let us find out where the evidence leads before people start making things up. Billy, I just want to say one thing about the, uh, the latest part of the press conference that you played. There's some very, very important points there. They've cleared the guy by the food truck. They've cleared the person that drove them from the food truck back home. They've cleared a lot of people as far as being involved. Now, you and I, when we spoke, we said, when you get to the point where you're going to either include or exclude someone from the investigation, it's time to move on. They're on to the next thing. So uh, for the most part, can you go back to that later on if some other new evidence or something else develops that puts you back in that direction with that person? Of course you can. You can never 100% say uh, th this person is not involved until you know for certain that you have the right person. So now, again, time to move on. Let's forget the conspiracy theories. Let the investigators do their job. Let them do their work. And Hopefully, we're going to get a conclusion to this case sooner rather than later. You know, look, there's there's a million things that the police do or are supposed to do, and they're under this big microscope. Did did they make a big enough crime scene the first day one? And some of the things that you might notice, you know, someone from that was a retired detective from another station said they should have done a grid search 100%. or a circular search leading from the house, and it's called a spiral search. Because it doesn't, I mean, you can't search enough. They they need to find the murder weapon. You cannot expend enough resources looking for that weapon. So, fa so far, they have not found the weapon. They have not recovered. So far, and again, they could be holding this back. So far, they haven't told us. That doesn't mean they don't know. They haven't told us the area of entry and the area of exit. They haven't let that go, but they may know it and they may not be releasing that. And I'm okay with that, Billy. I like the idea of keeping things close to the vents. And before we went on the air today, you and I talked about it. I want to keep those inf uh, those specific details, that information close to the vest, because when I do get someone in the box that I'm going to interview and they start to give me the story, I know by the facts of what they're telling me, because I know the inside of that crime scene. I know the things that haven't been reported publicly. And if that person starts to tell me, I know that they're going in the right direction and they're not lying to me. That's going to be very, very important. We don't want to screw up an investigation at any point. So again, if they're keeping things close to the vest, I'm okay with that. 
You and I talked about it. I think the police have an obligation to update the, the community at large periodically to say, listen, either we do have a good direction, we know who the suspect is and put it out there, or we don't, and people should be cautious and aware of their surroundings. And, you know, we don't want to cause panic, obviously, but that's the obligation of the police department. They don't have to release every single detail about what's going on in the investigation. However, putting certain things out there, and if, if there's a perpetrator, I think that should be broadcast immediately. Iris Hewlett, is it important to withhold if gloves were used? Yeah, I think it is. I think it, you don't let the public know that. Um, just as, you know, we, we mentioned the, uh, the Ripper case years ago in California, he was wearing a very specific uh, type of shoe and it made an imprint in the ground outside a window where they knew that he entered the house and they wanted to withhold that. A politician doing a press conference released that. And now when the perpetrator hits again, he's going to make sure I don't wear those shoes. Cause guess what? Who's ever did this or has done Crimes like this watches the news. They watch what the police are saying. They may be watching what we're saying. Didn't but, the perpetrator in that case throw away the shoes? He got rid of the shoes and yes, he did. He did. So there you go. That's so a, a that's why it's important. Look, even these these tips lines, these tips lines are, are extremely uh, important. However, there's a lot of crackpots that call up on these tips lines. So. If they call up and you start questioning them and you ask them questions specifically knowing the answers and they say, oh, this is what happened. And you say, thank you for your information. It's total bullshit. You know, uh, the people call up because they got nothing else to do and they make up stuff. So investigators have to withhold this stuff. I know we say this every single day and people are probably getting sick and tired of hearing it, but it is so, so important to withhold stuff. Let me play this. This is from CBS. We want to dig deeper into these latest revelations with Casey Jordan, a criminologist, behavioral analyst, and professor at Western Connecticut State University. So, Casey, we got just a few tidbits from the investigators. Where was your mind on this right now? What do you think we're looking at here? Again, it's been more than a week. And what we learned from last night's press conference is there are still no suspects. They're working hard on it. They are looking at every single tip that's called in. But they have definitively ruled out the roommates who were not harmed, uh, the guy who drove them home a guy in a white hoodie picked up in the food truck video. It, and they're, they're telling us who they don't think it is, but they don't seem to be any closer to who they think it is. So one of the more interesting things we found out is that the roommate's phone was used to make the 911 phone call, but somebody else made that phone call. And the police... See, I find that tremendously interesting. So the roommates of the two roommates that were on the first floor that were not killed, someone else used her cell phone to call 911. Why? Why didn't she call? I I have a question. You know, that's something that bothers me a little bit. Yeah, that does uh, seem a little bit odd. And I would like to know the answer to that question myself. And maybe the police do, but they're not releasing it. Had to actually yes. confirm it was not the killer, hmm. but it does appear other friends came over on that Sunday morning to discover these bodies. The, the phone records are are interesting because yep. on one of the phones, uh, one of the girls was calling, or somebody from that phone was calling the ex boyfriend multiple times. I think it was seven times, which shows that they were alive at that time. But what does that tell you? Right between two thirty and about two fifty two, uh, Kaylee was calling her former boyfriend, longtime boyfriend, mm -hmm. the parents vouch for him uh, seven times. And in fact, 
her friend Maddie also called him three times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are these girls drunk? They're not texting. Mm -hmm. They're calling. Mm -hmm. His story is he's asleep. He's not getting the phone calls. My question is, did they leave voicemails? And what do those voicemails mm -hmm. say? Why haven't we heard about this? Uh, the police were asked directly. You know, you haven't heard about it because it's none of your business. <laughs> you know what I mean? If that's important to the investigation, they're not releasing it. You know, it's none of your business, press. You know what I mean? Because if it's that important to the investigation, they're going to keep that close to the vest and not release it to the public so that, you know, they can sort another frenzy with some with something what what these uh phone calls said what was left in the voicemail yes absolutely and i think that uh people should take notice of when they show on the video the different locations of the house we'll talk about it later but take notice of the uh of the layout of the home is that ex-boyfriend a suspect mm -hmm. and they simply said they looked into the phone calls and it was cleared and they didn't think there was a connection but they didn't rule him out mm -hmm. let's talk about the weapon we've learned mm -hmm. more about the knife is that a potential area to follow in terms of the investigation is it a distinct kind of knife that might provide a clue absolutely that's the biggest thing we found out over the weekend we were wondering if it was a kitchen knife a knife mm -hmm. of opportunity found on location but it appears to be as if you will like a hunting knife a rambo style knife is what they're referring to. They are checking with local sporting goods stores to see if one was purchased lately, so far coming up dry. But that indicates that the person who did this brought the knife with them. They haven't found it. And the style of knife, again, reflects fantasy. This person has been thinking about doing yeah. a crime like this. They're interested in the, the, the process of stabbing. It's a very process-focused crime. And person who is obsessed with knives and bloodletting, this is the kind of person they are looking for, somebody who may have tortured animals in the the past that's going to be on their suspect list i don't know what kind of a profile that is bill but well uh, obviously she was pointing toward a serial killer when yeah. she was talking about someone who's tortured animals that is one of the um you know the proclivities of a of a serial killer that as a child usually they started out killing animals and that's you know jeffrey dahmer did that other serial killers had that in their resume in yes. their past. Someone in the chat just recently said, a former law enforcement officer, that officer said, sometimes we'd have someone uh, that was a person of interest and we cleared them, but that doesn't mean that we can't bring them back later on. And we did. You're 100% right. Of course. Right. Of course. Uh, if you clear them now, that doesn't mean when you gather more evidence or the evidence uh, gets processed that maybe that person who you cleared at this juncture may now be a person of interest. I hate that expression or possible a suspect. Absolutely, Billy. And, um, you know, th there's a lot of moving parts to this investigation at this point, but earlier today I did what we as detectives would do from time to time. I spitballed with you. I spitballed with duty run. I called him. I had watched the show last night. We just, I wanted to get a feel for where your head was at, where duty runs head was at. I even reached out to Ed Wallace, but he was busy uh, doing some training. Um, and at this point, when I was having dinner earlier, my kids asked me, what do I think? Who do I think is responsible? And I feel it's going to be someone from the local community. I don't think it's going to be uh, another student. I think it's going to be someone local to the area that knew the terrain. Um, again, I talked about the uh, real location of the house. 
someone that's familiar with the area can come in from the woods. There's a parking lot. There's other residences there, but could come in and possibly get in through that sliding glass door. It doesn't look like there was any forced entry. Perhaps that door was left open. There's a lot of what ifs in there, but uh, that's where my uh, my target is going uh, as far as a, a perpetrator in this case. And again, because of the large knife, maybe a hunter. I know that there's a lot of hunters in that area. Duty Ron was talking about that with me earlier. Um, so again, I think that that's what it's going to be. Perhaps someone that was rebuffed by one of the females, uh, and was targeted and Bill and I are both on the same page about this. We feel that maybe one or two of the individuals were targeted. However, the other were just uh, collateral damage, so to speak. The perpetrator went into, you know, to attack one and during the attack, uh, you know, maybe the two people were together in a room, so killed those two. And then maybe the other two were collateral damage, whether they stumbled upon it, heard it, or he just went and uh, heard them and uh, didn't want to leave any witnesses. So, I mean, there's a lot of conjecture there, but I think that uh, those aren't far-fetched ideas. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership. You see the folks with the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel members. You can sign up for whatever level you want, which carries with it a certain fee per month. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to navigate. You just go on Police Off the Cuff uh, website and you can, you'll be able to join our YouTube channel memberships. You know, folks, this this case, um, there's a lot of there is a lot of moving parts. In but in no way is this an easy case uh, for anyone at any level of investigative talent to solve. It's very difficult. There's a ton of evidence. The evidence will take a while to come back. The evidence will take a while to uh, cell phone evidence. We all know that takes a while. We spoke about um, the cell tower, um, the cell site information. All of that potentially could help or lead to the perpetrator in this case. Now, you got to wonder, was he carrying a cell phone? I don't know a single adult that doesn't carry a cell phone. Would he, been smart, would he have been smart enough, being this was premeditated, premeditated to leave his cell phone at home knowing that this is a walking, talking, tracking device. I don't know. Most people can't let go of their cell phone no matter what they're doing. Um, blood evidence. We spoke about it a million times that in a case like this, a knife uh, a knife murder and a, a 8 to 12-inch knife, the chances that the perpetrator cut himself are almost certain. So his blood will most likely be on the scene. All of these evidentiary things, stepping in the blood, leaving bloody footprints unique to a certain pair of shoes, um, hair and fibers from the perpetrator possibly left on the victims or vice versa, Chain, exchange of, of evidence, low-cards theory of exchange. Now, wh whether we'll ever be able to recover the perpetrator's clothing, the knife, uh, maybe the car he was in when he, if he did use a car coming to and from the crime scene. That hasn't been mentioned that much. How did the perpetrator get to the crime scene? How did he get to the house? Did he walk? 
then he should be caught on someone's ring camera. He should be caught on some video. Did he drive? Then, you know, potentially he could be on some traffic cameras or also a ring camera getting closer to the house. So all of those things, they take time. That type of evidence takes time to come back. But believe me, the police are looking into all of these things. Absolutely, Billy. I'm great, glad that you brought up the, uh, you know, you talked about the cell phone. Uh, when you do get that information, sometimes it doesn't come in right away. But when you get it, like if you do a geofencing, you dump a cell tower, you're going to wind up with thousands and thousands of uh, phone calls and, and you know, uh, customer name and information, the numbers of, of who was in the area. So there's a lot to track down there. Uh, one of the parents was on uh, the news over the weekend and said that very, very important. Bill, you brought it up, the ring cameras, any kind of surveillance equipment, anybody in that area has to really go through their stuff and look to see if there was anything suspicious. It's three or four o'clock in the morning when we believe this thing took place. There's not going to be so many cars going by or people going by at that time of the night. So again, go through all of that. And the third thing I wanted to talk about is you brought up premeditated. It's obvious that this was premeditated because this wasn't like a road rage incident where there's a fight and then all of a sudden someone pulls out a gun or a knife and starts, you know, killing somebody else. This sounds like it was very premeditated. They broke into the home, whether they broke in physically or they got in, they got into the home, they committed the murders, they got out. Definitely sounds like it was premeditated to me. I think that's a gimme on that. And uh, the person, to my experience, sounds like they were familiar with the area. That's, again, why I feel that it's someone local to the area. I don't think this was random, like a serial killer just picked somebody out of a hat. No, this was targeted for sure uh, based on what we know. And, again, if you look at the uh, geographical area of where the house is located, the terrain goes up the front of the house. Looks like the back of the house was put on afterwards and, uh, you know, access to the back. You When you walk up to the back of the house, you're already at the second floor. Of course, of the location, the the, uh, the uh, area is higher in the back as it is uh, lower in the front. So the, the front of the house is the first floor. You go to the back, you're already at the second, and then you got the third floor. By the way, sliding doors on both the second and third floor in the rear. So that's two access points that could have been accessed. We don't know. Uh, you know, you would think maybe the one that's on the ground level would be locked. Perhaps the one up where the deck is uh, could have been open. And again, uh, I don't think it takes much effort to get up onto that second level, which would actually be the third level, second level from the back. And you know, that, that, that was something that that was something that was confirmed in, in yesterday's press conference with the fact that uh, two of the students were on the second floor and right. two were on the third floor, and the two students that survived on the first floor. That was never confirmed until yesterday. And I believe it was uh, the male and female student. I don't have their names in front of me. That, that was on, e Ethan uh, Shapin and uh, Zana Kernodal. They were on the um, second floor. Yes. And then Madison, Mogan, and Kaylee Goncalves were believed to be on the third floor. Right. So that was the first time that we had ever heard that. I mean, like when people talk about Oh, there was really not a no new information. Oh, there was plenty of new uh, information yesterday. Yes. And uh, let me play a little bit of this. Your case, there's a plethora of evidence uh, involved. And any time that there's a violent incident, there's going to be multiple pieces of evidence from blood, hairs, fiber, uh, shoe prints. And then potentially if the individual was uh, operating a vehicle, there could be vehicle tracks on the outside. 
uh, everything from even fingerprints and DNA. So there's a plethora of evidence. Uh, it's going to take a while. And one of the missing features of this particular case is the motive. And so we think of evidence as a bunch of uh, frayed uh, fibers. We can mend those together and they will lead us towards that motive. Uh, but in this case, uh, there is still some information yet unfounded as far as electronic information, interviews with numerous people, and of course, the behavioral side, uh, taking a look at both the victims themselves and even the violent crime itself, pulling that all together. And I think investigators can use forensic intelligence to weave this together to help lead them to that motive. Steve, it's like you were reading my mind. That was the perfect segue for Doc. Doc, uh, the BAU unit is on the scene. They are trying to find a pattern here. We know the killer is at large, so they haven't been able to interview him to find that motive. What do you think the BAU unit is looking for to help capture this guy? What they He's referring to the BAU as the uh, FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Yeah. It's, it's a science that they analyze many things from the crime scene, the way that the crime was conducted, who the victims are, the evidence left behind, and they, they create a profile of the killer. And that's hopefully will help in uh, apprehending and in sort of narrowing uh, the field of who may have done this should be looking for is the, the victimology and any particular uh, risk factors that these victims might have had. The circumstances of the crime strongly suggest that the, the killer um, had some personal cause uh, mm. as part of the motivation. We know uh, so far we've been told that it's not a robbery and the coroner's report indicated that there are no signs of sexual assault. So. They, they should be looking for somebody who might have had a grudge, um, felt slighted uh, by one or... or. You know, Phil, with, we've spoken about this, and without me or you being uh, a trained in behavioral analysis, I would think that my prediction is this is a townie. And yep. that, that's sort of a, a term for people that are from the town surrounding the campus. We used to, up near when I went to college in Buffalo, people that lived in Buffalo called townies, Cortland, all these upstate towns. And the townspeople did not like the college students. They felt the college students were elitist. They were richer kids. And maybe some of the people from the surrounding area were from uh, an economically depressed area. So they were they were referred to as townies. And again, as I said, they, they looked down. It, could it have been possible that one of the girls may have um, thwarted an advance, say, on one of these townspeople. Could that be? And that's what I'm thinking it was. And I'm just, that's what I'm getting right now. I don't get in my crystal ball, in my experience as a homicide investigator, I'm not getting that this was another student. Could I be totally wrong? I've been wrong before, but this is what I'm getting right now. I agree with you, Billy. I feel the same way. It, the way things are playing out, and as time goes on, when you enter an investigation, as time goes on, you get more and more of a feel for things, and we've been covering this since uh, the last few days, and to me, I agree. With you. I, I think it's going to be someone local to the community. It may be just exactly what you said. Maybe a, an advance was rebuffed, and this person has immense rage, uh, anger issues, and uh, planned out this horrible, horrible situation. For all of the victims, 
Um, but I, I tend to agree with what Dr. Baden said earlier. Um, it's, it's likely that there was a primary target and that the other three might have been killed as collateral damage, either trying to come to the aid of the primary victim or because they were witnesses that could have identified uh, the killer. Steve, you have a lot of experience with the BAU unit as well, with their partners when you were at the FBI. How quickly does it um, take, you know, to get that profile out so they can put it out to the public or do they even put it out to the public for us to find this guy? Uh, typically, it's kept close to the vest. Um, uh, it's mostly for investigative purposes, but depending on how complex the case is and how many victims are involved and the types of evidence that are pre presented in the case, it can take some time. Uh, there's a lot of things that they need to evaluate. They need to understand interviews. They need to really take a close look at the evidence that itself uh, to draw any type of conclusion when it comes to behavior. Uh, they can make some broad uh, investigatory steps uh, to help lead investigators, but when it comes back to really isolating the core uh, traits of an individual or individuals that might have perpetrated a crime, it's very difficult. It can take some time. Doc, I got to go, but I got to ask you this. Because the way the crime was committed, does it suggest that this was premeditated from your experience? Or do you know, know about that? A absolutely. And I, I think the nature of the weapon also speaks to that as well. You know, this is not a utility knife that somebody might just be carrying because they need a screwdriver or, you know, to, to cut the tag off their, their new clothes. Um, the, the nature of the weapon itself suggests that the, the person went there with intent to kill. And, and I do believe it was a, a male as well, just statistically speaking yeah. in these sorts of cases, that's the, the sort of perpetrator you're going to be looking for. And um, also to echo what Dr. Baden said earlier, you know, we've only learned that each victim had multiple stab wounds. But I think there could be some clues there if there was one victim that had an exponentially or significantly uh, larger number of stab wounds than the others. Uh -huh. That suggests that the killer spent more time with that person and that that, might, that person might have been the primary target, whereas the others might have just had to have um, uh, been killed as, as collateral damage. Doc, so much resourceful information. Steve, thank you so much. You as well, sir. Thank you both. Hey, Sean Hannity. Very interesting, you know, yes. very interesting. I don't know um, the success rate of um, of profilers. Gunslinger, uh, thank you for the 1999 Super Chat. Uh, thank you. Gunslinger says, I noticed the New York Post picked up the story that a dog was skinned and mutilated in the area. It takes a sick person to do this. It takes a sick person to kill these people. One and the same. Gunslinger, that's the first time I'm, I heard little snippets of people talking about that. I've never heard law enforcement talk about that. I've never made heard them make a nexus between that and this case. So I can't really speak upon that. Phil, can you? I haven't read anything. It's the first I'm hearing about it. Listen, there are a lot of sick individuals in this world. Could it be connected to this case? Perhaps it can. 
Um, I just want to put one thing to rest. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories saying it has to be more than one person. It has to be more than one person. I think we discussed a little bit about perhaps the the uh, injuries were uh, sunken chest wounds, which would uh, preclude someone from screaming and stuff like that. But also you have to look at the layout. In the beginning of that, inter- that uh, news clip that you just played, it showed how the house, it almost looked like it's two separate houses in a way because one is on the lower part of the, uh, of the land. And then the, the, uh, the landscape goes up in the back. So again, it's very separated is the point I'm trying to make. So, uh, the two people that are in the other part of the house, uh, could have, uh, maybe not heard much. And again, one person can do all of this damage. It's possible there's more than one person involved. I think it's more likely it's just the one person. And to do, uh, like that doctor was talking about the collateral damage, Person's asleep, maybe intoxicated, very uh, easy to overpower them. And once you get stabbed in the chest once with a knife like that, you're basically incapacitated. We know there's numerous, numerous uh, wounds. So again, I think it's possible, quite possible for one person to have committed it. And again, for the other people not to hear about it. Those two things, I think we should put that to rest that there's really no conspiracy theory there. You know, folks, one of the things also I just talk about. Um, homicide investigation as a science. There's something called low, medium, and high risk of becoming a victim of a homicide. And obviously, low risk is someone just going about their life, going to work every day, doing things that don't put them at risk. Drinking alcohol, that raises your risk a little bit. Doing drugs, that raises your risk. Going out with prostitutes, that raises your risk. I'm just giving examples. I'm not saying this Uh, applies to any of this. Uh, You know, obviously the highest risk people are people in the highest risk criminal professions, like drug dealers. They have a very good chance of not making it to their 23rd birthday if they stay in that profession, you know, and other things put you in, in risk. Could something that one of the girls did put her, have put her at this risk level and maybe interact with someone that she didn't know was was a criminal like this and maybe blew that person off, like did what, what he would have considered a disrespect, a diss. You know, maybe he got dissed. And people can get dissed and, and build things up in their mind to the point that they think they're more important or that this person, you know, she just disrespected me. I'm going to teach her a lesson. There's people that are of sick mind that would respond in this way. So that's, you know, I'm just trying to explain what can put people in risk to become a victim. And in every other way, these students are low, 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 low risk to be victims. And all students on a college campus are low risk. However, look, we're talking a week, eight days, nine days later of a quadruple homicide in which they don't even have a suspect right now. Absolutely, Billy. And again, this person, the perpetrator could be obsessed with one of these uh, victims, uh, antisocial behavior, uh, psychopathic behavior, uh, again, uh, maybe uh, narcissistic. And now uh, a rebuffed uh, by a, a female really sets this person off and sets off the events that took place. Uh, again, you don't know who we are walking amongst when you're in everyday life. You could be passing by 
a serial murderer or someone that has bad intentions and you don't know it. And again, it could have been a very casual thing, but that person on the other end of it took it as uh, a serious, like Billy said, a serious diss and hatched this plan to exact revenge, perhaps. Now, I mean, listen, we don't know who the perpetrator is at this point. These are just uh, theories that we're putting out there. And again, I'm going to stay with, I really believe, and Billy said it, somebody from the town, somebody local. It's going to be a local individual who's the perpetrator. And I just hope, I think we may be in for a long investigation. I hope we're not. But uh, it does seem like this might be a long road before we get uh, a perpetrator identified and arrested. You know, folks, you know, people that are in the chat, people that follow this, people that are content creators on YouTube, everyone has their um, right to their opinion, uh, to give what they think. And to put this together, I think that's one of the attractions of real crime podcasts. However, we try to use, you know, fact-based investigative techniques. And once a door is shut on something, you got to let go of it. You know, people are still talking about uh, the guy at the food truck that apparently he's been cleared, you know, he's been cleared. And again, can he be brought back into the case if they find information later on? Absolutely. I mentioned last night on duty, Ron, one of the things they should do when they talk to people is voluntarily collect DNA from them. 100%. A single person they interview, they said, would you mind giving us a DNA swab? That does twofold things. A, it either eliminates or includes that person. And B, it builds a DNA database, a local DNA database, which is a good thing to have. The other thing that they should do is take major case fingerprints also while they're collecting this DNA. Uh, It's an investigative technique that's being used. And the person being interviewed, they can turn you down and say, no, I'm not giving up my DNA. That's their right. They don't have to. But it's a good thing for law enforcement to to collect it, to ask if they would give their DNA. Let me play a little of this. Quadruple homicide investigation now enters its second week. Police say it's possible some of the victims were asleep during the attack. Some of the victims had defensive wounds and each victim was stabbed multiple times. Authorities also revealing the 911 call that alerted them to the slayings was made from the cell phone of one of the surviving roommates who police say are not suspects. Investigators saying the roommates had called friends over because they thought one of the victims had passed out and multiple people talked with police dispatchers. Police publicly ruling out several people who came into contact with two of the victims the night they were killed, including a man seen near them outside a food truck and a rideshare driver who took them home. Police are asking for the public's help, issuing a one-square-mile dragnet, asking for any video from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They are trying to establish how the killer made it into this house and out of the house. Keely Gonzalez's family also said seven phone calls were made to her ex-boyfriend from 226 to 252, but the family says those calls were not out of the norm. This person was asleep, unfortunately, um, was not getting the calls. Keely was in in, in imminent uh and danger her or Maddie, they would have called 911. They would not have been calling this person. Investigators are aware that multiple phone calls from Madison and Kaylee's phone were made to a male subject. Police still think the attack was targeted. Kaylee's family says they're afraid for others. We fear that this person will do this again. Kaylee's mother appealing to her daughter's killer. The guilt has got to be just overwhelming. It's got to be sickening. Stop hiding. Stop running. 
Just turn yourself in. And this morning, family members are preparing for the first of the funerals. Ethan Chapin will be laid to rest a little bit later today in Washington. Back to you, Savannah. It's just heartbreaking. Gotti, thank you. So, you know, that's uh, some of the things we're learning. We did learn a lot of new things from the press conference. Um, you know, the... I think it's the big the big mystery is like who did and the police obviously know who called 911 from that phone call and also were there messages left on the on the seven phone calls made to the boyfriend was there voicemail and that would just be indicative of what was their mental state of mind at the time was there someone in the house did they say something that would be something I think that the police would keep very close to the vest and not not release. Uh, so, if they if it's out there, they know it and they're not releasing it. Phil, you want to take care of this here with uh, Joe yes. Murray? Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Billy, I just wanted to make a quick comment about the 911 call. It sounds to me like, you know, someone came into the home. They thought someone was unconscious. Perhaps at that point, they started to notice the other people, the blood. Uh, they went into the maybe the, to the third floor and found the other victims. So, again, uh, the phone being passed around, so to speak, I don't think that's so unusual. I think that maybe it was a chaotic moment, panic, uh, screaming maybe. Uh, and someone else grabbed the phone and said, listen, you know, you better get here. There's other people, blah, blah, blah. Maybe a little bit of uh, expansion of uh, what was going on regarding initially being maybe an unconscious person. And now the further in investigation or further, uh, you know, uh, looking through the home, they find these other victims. So that's probably what I think may have happened. I don't think it's like... Uh, suspicious, so to speak, that the 911 call was made by several people got on the phone. I don't think it's uh, so suspicious. And again, police have said that they've cleared anybody that was in that home or anybody related to the 911 call. And again, the, the Uber driver or whatever it was, the person that uh, provided the lift, uh, the person by the food truck. Real quick, the person by the food truck, all you'd have to do is find the guy, which they, I think it was pretty easy to find the guy. And you ask him, where were you? What did you do? Now, uh, if you start to catch him in a lie, you know he possibly is involved. But if he has a solid alibi and then you can check his cell phone, let's say, to see where his cell phone was located, or perhaps there's other people that he was with that you can you know, get their information. So they eliminated him pretty quickly, it seems like, maybe over a couple of days. But it's not that hard to do is the point. So I think eliminating him at this point I don't think that's such a, uh, you know, everybody's stuck on, oh, he's involved, he's involved. The police eliminated him. I think it was pretty easy to do that. So, uh, again, could something pop up, you know, tomorrow or right now and and he's involved and he's the killer? Yeah, of course it could. But I think they're satisfied that he's not involved. So let's move on with that. No, he's uh, he's uh, absolutely cleared. Folks, The uh, what I think is one of the most important things, Full Circle of Florida, thank you for the $5 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. What I think is so important is to ascertain uh, the area of entry and exit. So, so important. Nothing and, more important at this point, I would say, Billy. That's yeah, really, really it's really hard important. to believe for me that there's no indicator of that. There's no blood 
on the exit of where the perpetrator left um, left the house. And there's no evidence of where he came into the house. Uh, I'd like to know, you know, when what you know what was the order of the of, of the murders? Was it second floor, third floor, third floor, second floor? I mean, all of those things are important. They're investigative uh, checklist things that you really have to have to uh, find out. Um, how and of course, how he got into the house. And I had mentioned earlier on, on other shows that we talk about geographical profiling. The chance that this guy's from the neighborhood is practically 100%, I think. He's from this area. He knows this house. He knows these kids. It's not like he came from across the country. He's he's from the Moscow area. And I agree with you, Billy. Right there, like there's, it does narrow down the field. But it still doesn't make it easy. Two quick points. One, uh, entrance into the home. That's going to be important because if he entered through that third floor sliding glass door and then went down into the, the second floor, maybe heard noises, something like that, or did he enter through the second floor, the other gla- uh, sliding glass door that's at the ground level at the back of the house and go in, hear something and go up and, and uh, kill the two people on the top floor. The other thing is, again, we think it's local. Maybe the police are doing background checks or people who are on, uh, you know, uh, recidivists or anybody that had any kind of a, an arrest regarding a knife. Uh, there's so many things that they could be looking at. I really, really am focused on a local person being involved in this homicide. Absolutely. Quadruple homicide. Crime, cops, criminals, courts, victims. Wouldn't the police as food truck guy voluntarily for his shoes and clothes from that video that night. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, it's a good idea. But I think what they would ask him for is um, is his DNA and uh, yeah. major case prints. So uh, they they might not ask him for, you know. Depending some- on what he told them, Billy, too. If he told them, listen, I went to this location and perhaps there's a videotape that they could look at right away. And that kind of excludes him. If they know what happened between 3 and 4 and he could really solidly account for his whereabouts between 3 and 4 a.m., you know, taking his clothing and stuff like that, I don't think is really relevant. You know what I mean? Depending on what his story was when they interviewed him, uh, when they can, uh, you know, they can get his alibi and, you know, either discredit it or say it's a hundred percent solid. Then I think you'd might go, if it wasn't good, then maybe you go into let's take his clothing. Uh, obviously the DNA should be taken either way, but that's just a quick swab. Yeah, folks. And uh, some folks uh, in the chat were objecting to that. Uh, you know, you take the DNA voluntarily. If someone objects to giving it, then you just, you don't take it. You know, uh, if they give it up voluntarily, you take it. All it is is a Q-tip swab of the interior of the mouth, the cheek cells, goes into a paper envelope, sealed, signed, boom, you got a DNA sample. So it's not intrusive. It's not like you're taking blood or anything like that. So that's uh, collecting the DNA. And again, they would probably take... Uh, major case prints. Look, that's one one science that hasn't been mentioned much is fingerprints. And, you know, a couple of you guys in the chat mentioned, could he have been wearing gloves? Yeah, he could have been, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you don't dust for fingerprints. There should be fingerprint dust all over the place looking for fingerprints. And then you'd have to do something called elimination from people that live in the house, people that have had in the house. So elimination prints and then 
whose print is this? You know, a, a print that comes out of nowhere and the prints are in, in through APHIS, automated fingerprint identification system. And that can, if you get a hit, that can tell you who the person is and if they have a criminal history. Absolutely. Well, I think we, you know, we're, we're at, uh, yeah, we're at the end, folks. Let's wrap it. Uh, we're going to be um, ending the show now. Duty Ron is live on the air. I implore all you guys to go uh, check out Duty Ron's show. I believe he went live at eight o'clock. Yeah. We're going to stay on this case for as long as it's open, and we'll be the first ones to be cheering when they lock someone up for this horrendous case. Phil, final words. Final words. Listen, let's hope and pray that this thing uh, comes to a conclusion real quick. We're in Thanksgiving week. We all have a lot to be thankful for. Just keep these families in your hearts and in your prayers. These people are going through a horrendous, horrendous situation. God bless the souls of these four college students that lost their lives. And let's hope for, like I said, a quick resolution and an arrest to bring the scumbag that did this to justice. Folks, on behalf of uh, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, first I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I want to thank all the new subscribers that went on our YouTube and subscribed, subscribed and gave us a thumbs up. And I want to thank everyone who supports us uh, on every one of our shows. Thank you so much. Have thank a great you. night and God bless everyone. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.